You know, we are a people who think we know a lot about love. And we live in a society that believes it understands what love is. And you can tell this by the music that we listen to. Have you ever done a search for how many songs have the word love in their titles? Now, I'm going to read some to you, and I feel silly reading some of these, but, but here you go. Uh, do you believe in love, the greatest love of all? What's love got to do with it? You can't hurry love. Why can't this be love? Love is a house. Addicted to love. Well, I could keep going. Now, now these were all love songs from the 80s. If you're offended by any of these, let me just assure you that I was in Brazil for most of the 80s, so I don't know any of these songs myself. Uh, but, but what's striking about these titles and these songs is, you know, they, they clearly communicate that love matters. We, we value love. We recognize that love is a good thing. But it's one thing to just to sing about love. It's a whole different matter to actually love someone. Love is hard. You know this. And, and if you don't, uh, trust me, you will soon. Love sometimes hurts, right? Love sometimes disappoints. And, and too often, we just simply fail to love. So what do we do instead? Well, well we respond cynically towards love. We, we approach life with stoic rationality rather than risk being burned again. Or, or we try to redefine love into something more manageable. Don't do to others what you would not have them do to you. you know, love is all about actions. You know, I provide for my family. My family knows that I love them. As long as I don't hurt anybody else, what does it matter what I do with my life? I wonder how you would define love. And this is important because you know, on, our, on our best days, and in our right minds, we all know that love is good, and we all want to be known as loving. Nobody really wants to come to the end of their lives and be remembered as someone who was selfish and bitter and hateful. And yet, to be remembered as loving by your friends and family is one thing. But what about God? What would it take for God to see in us a, a life of love. You know, we come this morning to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, feel free to turn there. It's, it's on page 1786 in your pew Bibles. This is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible because here God tells us what love is. But rather than watering it down into something that we can manage, God actually turns up the heat. Uh, as much as we think we know about love, it turns out that we actually know very little. As much as we think we value love, it turns out we haven't even actually begun to realize its true significance. So, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love. I am only a resounding gong 
were a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. As I said earlier, this is probably one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. And I'm sure many of us have attended weddings where this passage was read. So, so it's easy for us to attach this passage, the, the, the sentimentality of a picture-perfect wedding day. But if you'll remember to two months ago when we were going over 1 Corinthians 12, that that's not the context of this chapter. It's not about a wedding day. No, no rather, we found ourselves kind of embroiled in church controversy, uh, this conflict surrounding spiritual gifts. And so Paul's goal here is not to give us a passage about love that we can read at weddings. No, his goal is to confront all the wrong ways that we think about love which lies at so much of the root of our sin. And so, in this chapter, he's basically saying to the Corinthians three things. This is my outline. Three things. Without love, you're nothing. You don't even know what love is. And love will last longer than all the stuff you care about. So I pray that as we listen this morning, that that we also would be confronted. And that we would consider what it would take for us to live a life of love. Alright, so first, Paul wants us to know that without love, you're nothing. Without love, you're nothing. Alright, look again at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, But have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now the question here is, how important is love? We all talk about how great love is, but why is it that when it comes to our lives, we actually give very little thought and attention to it? I think that our default attitude is simply to do kind of what we want 
and sort of assume that love is there. You know, we just sort of assume that, yeah, we are loving people. But, but clearly here, love is far too important for us just to assume. Because without love, your life ultimately counts for nothing. And to make this point, Paul compares love to all those things that the Corinthians so admired. Right? And if these things don't apply to you, then feel free to substitute them with the things that you are impressed with. So, even if you had the gift of tongues, where you could soar on the heights of spiritual ecstasy and speak like the angels, the amazement of everyone around you, but you did not have love, then all your speaking would only be meaningless noise to God. In fact, the term here, clanging cymbal, often referred to instruments used in pagan worship. So, so Paul might, hear, might even be saying here that, that these miraculous gifts without love are indistinguishable from pagan worship. I mean, no matter how passionate you are, no matter how deeply emotional your worship experience might be, without love, none of it pleases God. But he pushes it even further. Uh, imagine someone who's a gifted preacher, who, who has all of his theological categories in a row, who understands the deepest mysteries of God and, and who can teach God's word to the edification of thousands. But if he does not have love, he is nothing. Or imagine someone who by faith is able to perform the greatest miracles. He can move mountains. He can raise the dead. He can change the course of society. But he does not have love. Well, that man is also nothing. When God evaluates them, they are of, of little or, or even no account. So listen, no matter how good your theology is, no matter how gifted of an evangelist you are, or preacher or theologian, no matter how mountain-moving your faith is, without love, God is not impressed. One last thing. Paul pushes beyond the, the spiritual gifts to the realm of, of great acts of sacrifice. Now, now, surely this is the way to impress God, right? Imagine someone who gives away all that he has, leaves his, his family and his friends and his loved ones and the comforts of this world to, to spend the rest of his life serving the sick and the poor in some dark corner of the world. Imagine someone who, who resists persecution, who stands up for what she believes in, even to the point of being burned at the stake, giving her life as a martyr for a righteous cause. Surely that counts for something. I mean, the poor people are getting fed. Sick people are being healed. The, the, the righteous causes are being defended. Surely that counts for something. Yeah, if there's love. But without love, I gain nothing no matter how sacrificial you are, even to the point of giving your life. Without love, you gain nothing. What do we learn here? Well, like I said in the beginning, if, if love really matters this much, then we should never assume that we have love figured out. Uh, now, we're so intentional in figuring out how to be more efficient, how to be more educated, more religious, more theological, more talented. But do we think the same way about love? Uh, have you ever met with a, a trusted brother or sister to study your life, 
to consider whether or not you are loving others and to strategize about how you can be growing in your love. You know, what this reveals is that we are way too easily impressed by external things, aren't we? Uh, we, we admire great feats of passion and religion and sacrifice. We think that the people who do great things for God are the people who really matter to God. And we dream about doing those great things ourselves. But what we see here is that just because you do great things does not necessarily mean that there is love. Actions do not necessarily equal love. And without love, God is not impressed. No, no, love involves our hearts. It begins with our affections, with, with our motives, with who we are. And that's why it's so hard. What this means is that you can never be so great and so accomplished so as to feel that you have arrived, that you have mastered love. Even if you're a hero of the faith, if you're a world-famous Christian, you're always going to be humbled by the challenge that love presents to your fallen heart. But the reverse is also true, right? You can never be so small and so insignificant that you cannot do great things for God. Because if your life is characterized by this love, then your life becomes a display of the infinitely glorious love of God in a dark world. And God will count your life as of eternal value. Friends, let this be an encouragement to you. If these warnings are true, then then the reverse promises must also be true. If you never sing with the tongues of angels or speak with great eloquence, but your words flow from love, then your voice will be sweet music to God. If you've never preached on a Sunday morning or or received a seminary degree or, or performed a great miracle, but week in and week out, you have faithfully loved those around you, then you will have accomplished great things for God. If you've never sold all you had and moved to a third world country or suffered dramatically for your faith, but your life is characterized by a love for your brothers and sisters in the local church, oh, then a heavenly reward awaits you. Friend, friend, love is what ultimately matters. Love is not just sort of the side accessory to, to your other accomplishments in life. No, no, love is the defining issue of your life. The problem we face in life is not fundamentally that we don't do enough great things for God, that, that we're not brilliant enough or gifted enough or heroic enough. Uh, that's too often what we think. But what did Jesus say? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Oh, friends, if this is true, then the ultimate problem that all of us face is our lack of love. We fail to love one another because we fail to love God. And and that is the essence of what the Bible calls sin. And we here are all sinners. 
So friend, consider what this is saying. The Bible is not asking you to perform more amazing things for God. It's not telling you to give away your money to charity in order to be accepted by God. No, instead, it's asking you something far more radical and yet far more simple. Is your life characterized by love? And before any of us answer that question too quickly, let's consider what love is. And that's my second point. Paul confronts us by saying, you actually don't even know what love is. You don't know what love is. Look with me, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You know, this is not an exhaustive description. I'm sure there's a lot more that can be said about love. But this is what Christians who are struggling with disunity and pride, this is what they needed to hear. And this is a really useful heart check for every single one of us here. Uh, do you want a way to, to evaluate how loving you are? Well, we'll sit down with a, with a friend and walk through every single one of these this week. Uh, take, di- take time to, to evaluate your life according to these things. Uh, how am I doing in this? Where am I not doing well? How have I seen growth in this past year? Or have I seen growth in this past year? You know, so for example, verse 4, for patience. How are you impatiently in, in bearing with hurts done against you without complaining? It's striking that Paul begins here. Uh, perhaps because love in the fallen world must begin with patience. Right? Um, love requires patience. If you limit your love only to those who never cross you, you're going to find yourself alone pretty quick. So, so, so how's your patience towards others? And not only kind of patience and bearing with wrongs done to you, but, but how are you in proactively showing kindness to others? Love is kind. Love, love cheerfully and freely seeks to do good to others. This is different from leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. No, this is us going out of our way to do intentional good to another person, not only physically, but spiritually as well. Are you kind to others, even those you think don't deserve it? How about envy? How are you in dealing with envy? Envy is the inability to rejoice with those who rejoice. So are you glad when others receive good things in life? even those things that you want but don't have? Do you ever pray for others to be blessed, even in ways that you yourself want to be blessed but haven't been? What about boasting and pride? Do you look down on others because they don't have the the character or the education or the career or, or whatever, fill in the blank, that you have? Maybe not overtly, but do you carry a sense of superiority over others? And if so, how do you treat them? Verse 5, what about in self-seeking? Are you concerned primarily about yourself? And this is where 
so many of our good actions are ruined, isn't it? Uh, you know, the, the teenager shapes up so that he might be allowed to go out with his friends. The, the husband gives his wife a nice gift so that he can go golfing with his buddies. Um, the business owner adopts philanthropy as a business strategy to drive more sales. Can you trace self-seeking motives to your actions? How about anger? How are you in being slow to anger? You know, the Bible is really clear. There is a place for righteous anger. But it seems that we're really quick to grant ourselves that. Um, How often are you angry when actually no wrong was done? How often are you angry when actually only a, a really small offense was done? How often are you angry more because you are personally hurt rather than because you are concerned for the other person or concerned for the glory of God? Love is not easily provoked to anger. And, and love keeps no record of wrongs. How are you doing in your forgiveness towards others? Forgiveness is not excusing an accident. It's not pretending that everything is okay. No, forgiveness is recognizing that a real offense against you has occurred. But rather than using that against another person, you choose to bear that suffering yourself and to cover over it so that the other person will not have to suffer. Love forgives. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. So, so does your love for others involve confronting evil when you see it? Does it involve speaking the truth even when it's hard to hear it? You know, flattery is not love. Flattery cares more about yourself than the other person. Nor is it love for us to gossip and take delight in the failings and wrongs of others. No, no, love refuses all that. It refuses to delight in evil. But it rejoices and it speaks the truth. And finally, and perhaps most challenging, verse 7, does your love persevere? Does your love endure? Genuine love lasts for a lifetime. If you show patience and kindness and forgiveness for, for, for two months and two, or two years, or two decades, but then you decide it's time for a break. It's time for some me time. And you give way to selfishness and pride. Well, then that was not genuine love. If you forgive the first and second and tenth time, but you don't forgive the eleventh time, well, then that was not love. Love endures through every circumstance. It is generous in its trust. It hopes for the best. And even after repeated disappointment, love perseveres to the end. In all of these descriptions, Paul is not giving us a to-do list. He's not saying buy flowers, remember birthdays, you know, plan dates. That's not how you show love. No, he is getting at our hearts. Love, yes, love involves actions, but love is more than mere actions or deeds. Love fundamentally begins with our hearts. Let me just make three more just observations about this list. And the first one is that it's clear that love here exists in the context of broken relationships, right? That, that's why love is so hard. 
notice how so many of these characteristics are in response to the reality of sin. Patience. Well, you wouldn't have to be patient if people weren't so annoying. Uh, envious. There's, there's inequity. Uh, not being easily angered. Uh, not keeping a record of wrongs. Not delighting in evil. Now, all these things exist because people are sinners. Because I am a sinner. But rather than perpetuating that cycle of sin, here we're being given a new way to live. Love is how we respond to sin in a fallen world. But but love only works if you engage in these fallen, imperfect relationships. This is why love in the local church is such a big deal. I mean, remember, the context of this letter is not a storybook wedding uh, where the husband and wife are dressed up and looking their best and on their best behavior. No, the context of this passage is messy relationships inside the local church. Uh, Relationships with people who struggle with pride and selfishness and anger, who who come from all sorts of different cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds, people with whom you have really nothing in common but Jesus. It's in that context of of regular, difficult, face-to-face relationships where love is to exist. So if you isolate yourself from, from inside your own sort of self-controlled world uh, where, where you, know, you never invest in relationships, where you never open yourself up, you might be really good at showing patience and maybe even forgiving once in a while. You know, but you won't know what it means to love. Love is impossible on a deserted island. Uh, rather, love exists in the context of, of real but fallen relationships. The second observation I have here from this list is, is that love is self-originating. Okay, what do, I, what do I mean by that? The way love works in this world is that you see something outside of you that's really attractive. Now, that something outside of you promises happiness. It promises good for you. And it sort of elicits love out of you. That's what this world calls love. But that's not what we see here. No, this is telling us to love people who make us feel impatient, who who, who hurt us, who we need to forgive. This is not about loving those that we deem to be beautiful or rich or good. No, this is about voluntarily loving those who hurt us, who wrong us. This is about willingly, even cheerfully, Loving people who we don't think deserve it and who offer us no earthly advantage. Why? Because, because this is a love that does not begin with, with others, something outside of us, but it originates within us. It, it is a love that is not dependent on others and how they live, but it flows from our own character and our own heart. That's really radical, isn't it? But we shouldn't be surprised because this is exactly how God loves. Romans 5, 7. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, God doesn't love us because we are good. No, God loves us because he is good. I remember growing up seeing these, these buttons that the Christians would wear. Uh, that would say, smile, God loves you. You know, 
And certainly, you know, knowing God's love should cause us to smile. But, but it doesn't cause us to smile because we can feel good about ourselves. God's love doesn't really kind of pump up my self-esteem. No, God loved us while we were sinners. While we were his enemies. God's love originated from himself. It would be better if the button said, smile, God is love. God is love. Now that is true hope. Because if God is love, then his love is not dependent on my performance. But, but, it, but it's self-originating. It flows, overflows from who God is, and it, it flows into my life. And it transforms me. And it enables me to love in the same way. And that's the third thing I want to highlight here. That we love, we can love this way because we have been loved by God. You know, every description of love that we are given here connects back to the way we have been loved by God in Jesus Christ. So consider that love is patient. How patient has God been with us? The only reason any of us are here in this room to hear this word, uh, the, any, the only reason any of us have lived long enough to hear the gospel and, and repent and be saved is because God is long-suffering. He is patient. You know, some people look at Old Testament stories of God you know, raining down fire in judgment, and they say, you know, how can God do that? Well, have you ever thought about the fact that 10,000 days before that day, God was sending sun and, and gently falling rain on people who were rebelling against him? You know, God is a patient God. And, and who we... And we what, we have received in patience, well, well, any patience that we could show to others just pales in comparison. Uh, God has been kind to us. God has dealt with us kindly. God doesn't just kind of love us from afar. No, he adopts us into his family. And as his children, he means to spend all of eternity blessing us with his kindness. Ephesians 2, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages, for all eternity, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And really, that strikes at our envy, doesn't it? If we have been given incomparable riches, then why do we need to envy anymore? Uh, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Uh, in the gospel, we have gained God. So what reason do we have to envy? The gospel strikes at our pride. It does, it does so in two ways. It, it reveals our utter sinfulness and helplessness. And it saves us, not by anything that we do, but entirely by God's grace. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? God's lavish love humbles us and frees us from our pride. And it's this love that rescues us from being so self-seeking. From our birth, we are self-seeking. The, the Puritans used to say that we are bent in on ourselves. Everything we do comes back to us. But the gospel opens our eyes. It lifts our head and points us to something far greater, 
namely the love of God. It's not that we don't care about being happy anymore, but in the gospel we have found something greater than any happiness that we can find in ourselves. The gospel frees us from, from bitterness and anger. You know, when God forgives you, he, he does not do so half-heartedly. He doesn't just forgive 50% or 90% and, and expect you to make up the rest. No, God forgives all of it. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will tread our sins underfoot, and you will hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. As someone who has been a Christian for over two decades, I think I'm more amazed by God's forgiveness now than 20 years ago. Because even now I continue to sin against God, and God continues to forgive day after day, week after week, month after month. Now, if that's how God forgives, and if that's how God has loved me, can I not trust Him with, with my bitterness, with my hurts? Can I not trust Him to handle the way others have hurt me? God, God's love frees me to forgive and to let go. And finally, the gospel guarantees our security. God's love perseveres now and forever. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God. His love doesn't just endure for a season or for a lifetime or even for a million years. No, his love endures forever. If you're having trouble persevering in love, or, or any of these things, if you're having trouble showing patience, or, or forgiving, or whatever, use that as an opportunity to thank God that his love is not like yours. Thank God that His love in Jesus Christ is so patient with you and so forgiving and so never-ending. Realize that you never deserved such love, but you have received it in full through Jesus Christ. And allow that then to transform you, to spur you on to loving others. If you're not a Christian here this morning, please understand that before God calls you to show love, God first calls you to receive His love. Being a Christian is first and foremost, again, not about us doing things for God, but it's about letting God do for us what we could have never done for ourselves. We have lived a life of selfishness and and, and hatefulness. We have lived a life of sin and rebellion against God. But how does God respond? He responded in love. Though we deserved his wrath, he sent his son instead to come into this world, to live the life that we should have lived, and then to humbly bear the punishment that we deserved on the cross. He died in our place in order that we might be forgiven, in order that we might be saved. And he conquered our sin. He conquered our death. And he rose from the dead. And now, for all those who will turn away from their, from their lovelessness, will turn away from their selfishness, 
and, and turn to Christ and receive this love, then, then you will be forgiven. You will be accepted by God. You will enter into this world of love. In the gospel, we have this amazingly loving God. But outside of the gospel, all we have is judgment. The, the way in is through Jesus Christ. If this intrigues you at all, if you want to ask more questions, please come talk to me at the door. I'd love to set up a time for us to talk this week about what this would mean for your life. You know, even though earlier I said that, that this love is self-originating, it actually is not ultimately self-originating. You know, insofar as anyone is able to live this out, it is only possible first by receiving the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's that love that transforms us to enable us to live in this way. And though it might begin imperfectly in this life, by God's grace, it does begin truly. And if it does begin truly in this life, well, then it will endure beyond this life into all of eternity. Which is what we want to think about next. The final point that Paul wants to make is that love will last longer than the stuff you care about. Look at verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You know, all of us want to make sure that we are investing our our resources into things that will last, right? We feel bad for, for those who pour their life savings into an investment only to see it fail. Right? We feel bad for those who buy a house right at the top of the market only to see the housing market crash. But, but as hard as those things might be, they are not insurmountable. You can always find a way to recover financially. But what about your life? What if you spend your one life that you've been given living for things that will eventually pass away? That's what Paul wants us to think about. The Corinthians were obsessing over prophecy and tongues and gifts of knowledge. And those are not bad things. They're actually spiritual gifts given to us by God. But as helpful and edifying as those things might be, actually, they are passing. They're not going to be around forever. When will they go away? Well, it will be when perfection appears. Now, some scholars debate as what that could mean, but Paul seems to be pretty clear that perfection is about the arrival of someone, of a person, of seeing him face to face, of knowing him personally, even as we are known. What Paul is talking about here is the return of the risen Messiah to establish the kingdom of God in this world. On that glorious day, the sky will roll back like a scroll. 
the perfect one, Jesus Christ, will appear and Lord Jesus will come. Sin and death will be defeated and we will see our beloved Savior face to face. Brothers and sisters, that's not just kind of religious, wishful thinking. No, this is what God has promised and this is what we are destined for. And we are to allow that coming day to shape our lives today. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Consider what it's going to be like when Christ returns and let that influence how much weight you give to the stuff of this life. If you are so consumed with stuff that will not last past that day, well, well then why, why allow that to consume you? You know, Paul isn't just talking about bad stuff, you know, drugs, sin. No, actually, he's, he's talking about spiritual gifts. These are good things. But do you realize that so much of what, of what constitutes as faithful Christian living now is not going to exist in eternity? Think about it. We're not going to need to hear preaching anymore because we will be in God's presence forever. My, my job has a time limit. Right? We're not going to need charismatic gifts anymore because we're all going to worship at his feet. We're not going to need to organize small groups and Sunday school classes, uh, mission trips or, or, or ministry teams because sin and death will have been defeated forever. We're not going to need to study Bible prophecy anymore because all of God's promises will have been fulfilled and we will see it with our eyes. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that any of these things are bad or wrong. No, in fact, they're all very good and appropriate for now. For now. While we live in this age, in, in this time between the first and second coming of Christ, yes, we should pursue these things. But friends, don't live like this is all that there is. No, something far better is coming. On that day, only one thing will remain, and that's love. That's what verse 13 is saying. Faith, hope, and love, that, that wonderful New Testament summary of what the Christian life is all about. We live by faith in what Christ has done for us. We, we live in the hope of the return of Christ, and our lives are transformed by love for God, for one another. That's what life is all about for now. But the day will come when we will no longer need faith and hope. Hebrews 11, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But on that day, we will see. We will see him face to face. And all of our hopes will be fulfilled. And so there will be no more need of faith. We can lay down hope. And all that will remain is a world of love. You know, eternity, future, will be like it was in eternity past. What do I mean by that? John 17. This is how Jesus prays in John 17, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me 
may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. God is love, but that first and foremost does not mean anything about us. It's talking about God. Through eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit lived in perfect fellowship of love. God perfectly expressing his love, perfectly enjoying that love within the Trinity, perfectly delighting in one another, perfectly rejoicing over each other. And this will go on for eternity future. Except now, we will be swept up into that love. One theologian writes this, The Father gives all of His glory, all His love, His blessings, His very self, exclusively to His Son. And then He sends His Son to share with us His fullness. The Father, then, is not about sprinkling blessings from afar, And his salvation is not about being kept at a distance, merely pitied and forgiven by our Creator. Instead, he pours all of his blessing out on his Son, and then he sends him that we might share his glorious fullness. The Father so loves that he desires to catch us up into that loving fellowship he enjoys with the Son. And so that means... I can know God as He truly is. As Father. I can know the Father as my Father. Friend, this is what eternity holds. The love that God the Father has for His Son will be in us, forever united to Christ. We will be brought into the eternal fellowship of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in tasting God's amazing love, we ourselves are going to love each other also. Again, remember, the context of this passage is about love in the local church. So, so if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here in this room, here this morning, then one day you are going to love me with a perfect love. I am going to love you with a perfect love. And we are going to love each other with a perfect love. One day, there will, be, there will no longer be a hint of any impatience in our love for one another because there will be no sin at all. In fact, any differences that we might share on that day will only, seek to, only serve to, to increase our love for one another and our gratitude for God. You know, one day, there's going to be perfect kindness between all of us as every glorified saint in this room will become an infinite source of joy and delight for each other. There's not going to be a hint of envy or jealousy, but, but any blessing or reward or advantage that you experience in heaven is only going to result in my greater happiness for you. There's not going to be any temptation to boast or to be proud because together we're going to serve and know that everything we have is from God. And we're going to be able to love each other in perfect humility. There will no longer be any anger or frustration in our dealings with one another because love will never again go unrequited, but will always be perfectly mutual, perfectly reciprocated. Any wrongs, any offenses 
that we have experienced in this life against one another, those will be fully and perfectly forgiven. No mention of them will ever come up again. In heaven, we're going to be free from all of our laziness, all of our dullness, all of our passivity, from all of our awkwardness and shyness, from all of our foolishness and selfishness, and from every other evil that keeps us from loving one another as we ought. Never again will congregations break up. Never again will loved ones depart. But we will have perfect enjoyment of one another's love forever and ever. Henson Baptist Church, this is where we're headed. Yes, our love today for each other is so weak and so fallen, imperfect. But don't you long for that day? Don't you long for that love to be formed in you, even now? Friends, let us not simply long for the blessings of heaven. Let us love and long and strive for the character of heaven also. The character of love. Oh, may, may that love mark our lives and our church now. And may that stretch into all of eternity. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you are the God of love. You are the King of love. And you have poured out your amazing love on us. Lord, those those are not just religious words. Those are not just things that we say to make us feel good. No, that is truth. This is what we have come to find out through Jesus Christ, that you have loved us in this way. So God, cause us to believe that. Cause us to receive that and change us, transform us, that we might begin living in the same way, that we might be like you, O oh God. Because we want, we want to make it to that day when we will see you face to face and everything will be love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.